Thank you so much for being here. I hope my voice holds out. I just got two more, so the good news. And so on this Mother's Day weekend, I thought about doing a special sermon. And so I thought about a sermon that I'd answer the question or preach, uh, what do women want? And yeah, and then I'd come back the following, you know, in, in June when we honor Father's Day and preach, what do men want? And so uh, I started off on the sermon of what do, what, do, what do women want and started going through scripture and everything. And I'm telling you, I'm like, I got nothing. And so, yeah, I'm like, I got nothing here. And so, you know what, I, asked, I decided to ask my personal assistant, her name is Siri, and so I grab my, yeah, so I grab, I mean, she keeps me straight in schedules and tells me directions and when I get lost and all that other stuff. So I asked Siri, I said, Siri, by the way, uh, what do women want? And so she talked nonstop for like two days, used all of my data, and I still don't get it. And so, so that is a joke in case you're wondering, but I honestly did ask her. And so I asked her, what do women want? And she, she came back and said, well, why don't you ask them? And so, you know, for me, for being a personal assistant, that's just not acceptable. And so I pressed in a little bit more, and I says, well, let me ask you this. Do you know what women want? And so, you know that it, so, so that you know that I'm not exaggerating, we have recorded her responses so you can see for, hear for yourself, okay? So I asked her the question, do you know what women want? And here's what she said. Now there's a good question. Now. Where were we? Yeah, she didn't even want to touch that. And so, but you know what? I wasn't going to accept that. So I asked her again, and here's what she says this time. I'm sorry, Charlie. I'm afraid I can't answer that. Yeah. And so, so I asked her again, because I'm not done. This is about you, not me. Yeah, now she has an attitude, right? <laughs> now there's conflict going on. So, so I asked her again, and here's what she said. I've never really thought about it. Yeah, right. I've been asking you about it for the last 15 minutes. And so here's the last thing. Here's what she said. A fine question. Now can we get back to work? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, so she has nothing and I have nothing. So here's what we decided. I decided to do, not we, like she's a person. But, but here's what I decided. That's kind of creepy, isn't it? But anyway, so here's what I decided to do. I'm just going to carry out on this series, Think Big. We've been in this series the last several weeks called Think Big, and today we're going to think priorities. And there's one thing that I have had the honor and the privilege of learning about my, uh, learning that my wife has taught me while I have watched her parent our children is the, the thing about selflessness and being able to put someone else's needs above your needs. The, the thing about sacrifice, if there's any one thing that we can learn from women guys is this. That they just have this ability, they have this natural ability, just normally, just to think of other interests, other people's interests above their own, or living a life of sacrifice, or living a life of selflessness, or all of that stuff. And so this morning, I just want to talk to you out of 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We've been in this series called Think Big. Today, we're going to look at Think Priorities, and we're going to look at these issues of priorities and what they should look like and what do they look like. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, Paul is writing to the church there in Corinth. Those of you that have been with us the last several weeks, you know the context. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. It's an affluent church that, that has a lot of new believers, a lot of new people coming in. And so Paul tells them, you guys have excelled in so many areas. You've excelled in preaching, teaching, ministry, uh, love, and grace, and all this other stuff. And then he just presses in and he says, but one thing that you don't excel in is this, in the area of giving. And so Paul begins in chapter 8 and 9, begins pressing in and talking to this church about the issue of giving. So here, 2 Corinthians 
chapter 9, verse 1. Here's what the scripture says. He says, now it is superfluous for me to write uh, to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year. And your zeal, okay, or your testimony, because your testimony is a powerful thing, right? When someone shares their testimony, it's a powerful thing to you. It encourages. So this is what Paul is saying. So your testimony has stirred up most of them, not all of them, but most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, so I, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you to arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. So it may be as a ready and a willing gift, not as an exaction, and so Paul is talking to them about their issue of, of money. And so they're trying to raise money over and above what they're normally given to help the poor churches in Jerusalem. And so much like the situation we find ourselves in, we have identified, we found 50 acres of land, and it's $375,000. And so it is our goal, and we are marching fast towards by June 1st that we would be able to have $375,000 in, in cash so we could pay cash for the land that would set us up for great success in 2014. And so we've been just simply asking everybody, just pray, ask God what you should give over and above what you're normally giving, and then just give it and we'll call it good. This last week I was life journaling along with many of you and I came to Matthew chapter 23 verse 1 through 3. And that verse really, really spoke to me. Uh, verse, three, verse 1, the scripture says this, and so Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. And so this wasn't a physical seat. This was a, this was, this was a position, in other words, that Moses interpreted the law for the people. And the scribes and Pharisees, they're the ones that preach and teach and, and, and explain the law to the people. And so watch what he says. It's a horrible commentary. And I know that the thrust of this message is spoken to ministers. But when we understand the New Testament, we get it, right? We're all ministers. In Christ, we're all ministers. And so he goes on and he says, and so do and observe whatever they tell you. In other words, listen to their sermons. Listen to what they teach. But not the works they do. And then here's what he says. He says, for they preach, but they do not practice. Man, there was like a dagger that stuck through my heart. He says, here's a group of men. Here's a group of leaders that Jesus said, hey, listen to their sermons. Listen to how they lead you. Listen to how they lead worship, but don't live like them. Don't treat others like them, uh, like they do. Don't behave like they do. Whatever you do, do not live like them. Do not allow their life to be a, an example of your life. In the margin of my Bible, because when I journal, I still use paper and sometimes a pen and and I just wrote the statement, just live the sermon. Just live the sermon. And so this morning when, when Paul made that statement in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and Paul said, your zeal or your testimony has stirred up most of them. See, Paul was honest and Paul understood not everybody's going to respond. But it stirred up most of them. And so here's what I decided to do this morning. I decided to give you my personal testimony. The fact is, Karen and I's per personal testimony on just simply why we give. I mean, there's something about the power of a testimony. 
And so many times, many of you have stopped me, whether you've emailed me or stopped me in the hall or the foyer, and you've already been giving me some of your testimonies, your giving testimonies. I had a man last week stop me in the hall, and he says, you know, Pastor, i got to tell you, you know, you've been asking us just to pray and ask what we should give, and I've been, and so much. So he said, you ask us to pray and ask what we should give. And so I just turned to my wife, and I asked my wife, well, have you asked? And she said, yes. He said, well, what's the figure? And so my wife looked at me and says, you know what, I can't tell you. You need to ask God, and then whatever he tells you, you need to, you need to lead our, our, our family spiritually. You need to be the spiritual leader of our family. So when he tells you, you just tell me. So he says, I prayed about it and thought about it for a couple of weeks, and God gave me a number, and I'm like, this is a big number, and it's going to be a stretch. And so I was really afraid to tell my wife, and he said, I went to my wife, and I says, here's the number. And he says, all of a sudden, my wife got tears in her eyes, and she says, you know, I believe this. That's the same number that God gave me. Now, I don't know about you, but a testimony like that, that encourages me. That encourages me that, that the same way that he can speak to someone else, he can speak to you. And in a marriage, he can speak to you and your spouse in the same way. So this morning, I'm just going to give you, it's really non-threatening. I'm going to give you five reasons why I give. This is my personal testimony. This is something that Karen and I have lived out for a, for a number of years for many different reasons. And so the first reason is this, is I give because when I give, I'm a better person. Now listen, I know that's narcissistic. But I think that's where a lot of us start out when we start giving, right? That I give because I am a happier person when I give. I give because I'm a better person when I give. In fact, yeah, Scripture talks about that, right? Scripture talks about there's some things in life that you will never break without giving. You will never break an idol in your life. You will never break a, a selfishness in your life. You will never break greed in your life. You will never break materialism in your life. And until you learn to give, that you're a manager and a steward of all that he's given you. And so maybe you know this, and maybe you've experienced this, that when you've given a gift, don't you find some satisfaction in giving someone a gift? That's because God has wired you to give. You realize that, right? God is a giver. God has created us, and we are created in his image. And so God has created you in a way to give to where the reason people get funny when you talk about money in church is because you're wired to give. And you've got to come up with reasons. You've got to come up with excuses why you can't give. 1 John 3, 17, the scripture says this, but if anyone has world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet he closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not live in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, let's just don't preach good messages. Let's just don't talk the talk. Let's live life in such a way that someone could peer in and press into our life and say, that would be an example for me. And so, um, so the first reason that I give is I give because I'm a better person. Now listen, Karen likes exercise, and I don't, you know that, and, and she likes to walk, and I don't like to walk, but I like to be with Karen, so I walk with Karen, and so we walk a lot, and we, I mean, we, the fact is, after the Saturday night service last night, we went, it seemed like, like eight miles to me, she said it was only two, but it felt like eight, <laughs> and so we just walked, and we just talked, and all of this other stuff, and so, so, but sometimes in the summer, we're walking, it's one of, my, one of our favorite things to do, one of my favorite things to do, whether we're walking or driving in a car. But you know when you come up across that, those kids in the front yard and they got that Kool-Aid stand happening, right? And they got that cheesy sign that they've made themselves and it's grubby and it's, you know, there. And then they're screaming like uncontrollably when cars go by or people walk by. They're screaming, stop, stop, stop. And you know there's a mom or a dad inside the house and you know what they're doing? They're praying, would Lord just let someone stop? 
Just let someone stop and bite something before they die of heat stroke or whatever. And so we always stop. And then you watch them, they just, they go bananas, right? I mean, they and they got jobs to do, and I, we watched them fight back and forth. No, that's my job. I get the ice. I'm the ice guy. You're the Kool-Aid girl and all this other stuff. And so we've watched it because they're so excited because it's their moment, right? And so then they get the ice out of their, you know, and they got the grubby little dirty hands because they've been playing in the dirt before you got there. And so... So the dirt's like muddy, and they throw Kool-Aid in, and there's bugs or stuff floating in it and all this other stuff. We never drink it. We throw it out. We're not in front of them, but we throw it out later. And then they'll tell us like a quarter or 50 cents, and we'll hand each of them a dollar and say, keep the change. And we'll walk away, but you'll catch them out of your vision as you're walking away. And they are running so fast in the house, waving that money. Mom, 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 you're not going to believe this. I'm telling you, I give because I'm a better person when I give. And when I give, I remind myself that I work hard for my money and I earn my money. And I remind myself that when I give, I live within my means so that I have discretionary income so that I can give. See, I believe this with all my heart. There's a lot of you that you wish you could give. But you've been living a life so long outside of the biblical guidelines for finances that you have become a slave to the lender. American Express, Visa, MasterCard, a car payment, boat payment, four-wheelers, a mortgage, 72 easy payments. No such thing as easy payments, by the way. And you have become a slave to the lender. See, when I give, I'm identifying myself with the one who gave nothing but his best for me. I am identifying myself with a generous God. For God so loved the world that what? He gave. He didn't give his leftovers. He gave his very best. The one who knew no sin, who became sin for us, so we had forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Second reason that we give I give because I've committed my life to him who has asked me to give. I give because I have committed myself to the one who has asked me to give. You see, I got serious in my Christian life. Actually, I came to Christ in my 20s. And so I didn't have a church history like some of you to where maybe you were raised in church and you got to see a mom and dad give of their income and give of their resources and tithe and all of that other stuff. And if that is you, I want you to know you are so blessed. You are so blessed if you lived in a home that actually understood that they could trust God not only with their finances, but they could trust God with their life. See, that is not my, that is not my story. And I never saw mom and dad give. I never saw mom and dad tithe. In fact, is the message that I heard is that all that church wants is your money and don't ever do it. And so in my mid-20s, when I came to Christ, I had to decide. See, for me, I had to decide what kind of commitment was I going to have. How was I going to live my Christian life? life because see this was huge for me this was a defining moment for me see just like for you I've decided the reasons why I give and you're going to have to decide the reasons why you either give or why you don't give and so one of the sermons that just rocked my world was a sermon on giving and a preacher got up and just without any guilt and without any of that stuff just taught what the scriptures taught and it radically changed my life it radically changed my marriage Because, see, money was no longer an idol to me, and I understood that I'm not an owner, and I'm a steward, and I'm a manager, and it just, like, changed everything.
And so I began looking at all the scriptures on giving because I wanted to know personally for myself. I went from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It had an old Strong's Concordance. Remember that before computers? And I went through every verse. And I realized that Jesus talked more about money than anything else. He talked more about money than he did about prayer and healing and miracles and faith and all that other stuff. Because, see, Jesus knew that your money has great power in your life. Fact is, we can talk about priorities, but Jesus says, you know how you know your priorities? It's how you handle your money. Fact is, if you want to know your priorities right now when you go home, you just need two documents. You need your credit card statement and you need your calendar. And where you spend your money and where you spend your time will reflect your, po- your priorities in life. And so, so people talk about commitment in every area of life, right? Fact is, in our society, in our culture, we celebrate that. And so people will talk about being committed to a football team. They'll be committed to a baseball team or a basketball team. Committed to a hobby. I'm committed to, to, to hunting or golf or whatever. And so they talk about being committed to a job or a career or a profession or education. I'm committed to a marriage. I'm committed to a relationship. I'm committed to the country or whatever. And so in our culture, in our society, we celebrate that. And it's so weird Then you move into the spiritual life and nobody, nobody wants to talk about Commitment. They won't say, you know what, I'm just spiritual. When you look at Scripture, you realize Jesus talked about commitment. And so I came to the point in my life that I had to say, you know what, does anything in my life reflect that I'm a Christ follower? I mean, what kind of Christ follower do I want to be? Do I want to be that type of Christ follower that's just believing in Jesus and hoping I get in? Or I want to be a Christian that's believing in Jesus, belonging to his family, that is partnered with a local body and understand the gospel and then becoming a disciple to where I get with other believers and get in a room and share scripture and pray for one another and encourage one another, disciple one another. And then all of a sudden understand life isn't all about me and I'm willing to build his kingdom and expand his kingdom. But do I really believe, see, for me, I had to decide, do I really believe that I could trust Jesus with my life, my whole life, including my money? So for me, when it came to the point where I understood out of Scripture that he wants me to give back my first 10% to him, it was no big deal for me. Let me just stop. Let me just tell you. And we don't do this because... I'm a pastor and I'm paid to give or I'm paid to be good. Karen and I were doing this years before I ever became a pastor. And we know the blessing and we know what God has done in our, our life. And I, I believe in this principle so, so strongly that I've told our elders, at any point, you can check my tithing records. No one else's, but mine. That I will lead my life in a surrendered position, surrendered to him, and surrendered to the leadership that God has placed over me. Because I think as a church, and I think as leaders, you should know that I practice what I preach, I practice what I teach. And so one of the reasons that I give is the one that I'm dedicated to and the one that I've trusted my whole life to has instructed me to give because of my own benefit. And listen, 
If you cannot trust him with your finances, how can you trust him with eternal life? How can you trust him with tomorrow? And if you're one of those believers that I call uh, bumper sticker believers, you know, all those bumper stickers, those Christian bumper stickers that is horrible theology. And if you got one of those bumper stickers on your car that says, Jesus is my co-pilot, somebody's in the wrong seat. It's his car and you stole it. <laughs> when you understand the lordship of Christ, that, Lord, that he owns all. See, it's not about making him Lord of your life. That's important. But you know what it's deeper about? It's submitting to his lordship. That's what's important. Till you understand that he is the Lord of your life, you submit to his lordship. And everything he has, he owns. It is yours. And you're just a manager and steward. When I got that, when I understood that, it was like a game changer for me. We didn't carry the stress like we once did of finances and all those other issues because we were partners with him in our finances. It became his responsibility. The third reason why we give is this. I give to keep myself under the umbrella and protection of God. I give, we give, to keep us ourselves under the umbrella and the protection of God. Fact is, if you take a concordance, and now you can do it so much easier, you can do it with a Bible, you can go to blueleather.com, you can go to, or blue letter, I think it is. Is it letter or leather? Letter. Blueletter.com. Thanks, Chad. Uh, so uh, you can go there, you can go to other places, and you can search for yourself. But almost every time where we're instructed to give, there's always a promise associated with that. See, there's unconditional promises of Scripture, and there's conditional promises of Scripture. Unconditional promises of Scripture would be, God said, I will never leave you or forsake you regardless of what you do. That's an unconditional promise of Scripture. It's not determined on your character. It's determined on His. There are also conditional script, uh, promises in Scripture. If you do this, I will do this. If you will give, and if you will come under my protection, by giving, I will bless you. We had been giving for a number of years and most of our marriage. And, and God called us in 1994 to come to Pueblo, Colorado, plant a church. And, and I'm just telling you, this, this is why it's so important in my life and, and maybe try to help you. The only way I could have trusted him with my future is to have been trusting him with my finances for so many years and watching him provide and so I was in engineering at the time, and some of you know my story, some of you don't. And, and so we, we, we left everything. We left family, we left moms and dads and relatives and jobs. And, and at the time, I had two homes. I had a home in Houston, Texas, and I had a, had a condo on the waterfront of Lake Conroe. And uh, we tried to liquidate and, and come to Pueblo, Colorado. And, and unfortunately, the economy in Houston was totally different than the economy in here. There was a downturn and all this other stuff. And so we couldn't sell our home. And not only that, but an average square foot uh, house or cost, it was about 30 to $40 a square foot that you could sell a house for in Houston at that time. And here, it was, you know that, it was much higher, it was 80 or whatever, $100 a square foot. And so we came, and we, we just trusted him, and we moved to Pueblo, Colorado. We got a rent house. Uh, we couldn't sell our house in Houston, so we decided to rent it. And so we find this renter, and we rent it, and we're 1,000 miles away because we couldn't afford that house payment and what we were doing here at that time the church wasn't paying us anything and so we had this renter and it wasn't just any renter fact is he was a he was a landlord's nightmare 
They had two pit bulls, and they used Amanda's room that just, Amanda's here this morning, but they used Amanda's room that just crushed Karen because they used Amanda's room as a kennel for the pit bulls. And so the pit bulls ate all the carpet. They ate the doors. They ate the, the molding. They ate the, the window seal. They ate most of the room, and then they ate what they didn't eat in there. They ate off the side of the house, uh, the backyard, and all that other stuff. And then he quit paying, and then we had to evict him. And I don't know if you've had these prayers. This is, just, this is my story, and I'm just transparent. And those of you that have been with me, you know that. But I had some real issues with God over that. And I had prayers that kind of went like this. Seriously? I don't know if you have seriously prayers. I have seriously prayers. <laughs> I'm like, seriously? After all I've given up for you? I've left my family. I've left a job. I've left stuff. I've liquidated as much. And the least you could have done was sell our house or get us a good renter? Seriously? And this guy moves out thousands of dollars of damage to the house, money that we really didn't have, money that we couldn't afford. I mean, this was a, this was a difficult time in my life. He, God used this time for me to trust him more. And so, so we get the renter out. My dad helped me with some money, and, and that was humbling. And we got the house put back together and said, Dad, when we sell the house, I'll pay you back. And we decided to put the house on the market. Karen is very emotional at this time because she thinks she'll never, ever own a house. We'd go do the parade of homes. We'd go look at houses and would say, you know what? We'll never be able to afford a house in Pueblo, Colorado. Our oldest daughter, Brittany, was in the fourth grade at the time, and she could sense the tension and what was going on. One Saturday morning, she's going through the want ads, the house for sale ads in the Pueblo Chieftain, and she just looks at us very black and white and nonchalant as Brittany is. And so she looks at us and says, Mom, Dad, I found our house right there. We're like, what? She goes, I found the house, and I, I wouldn't even look. I said, that's crazy. Well, Karen, you know, goes over and looks and says, and so they described the house and said the cost. And I says, there's no way. That house is a piece of junk. I mean, they've had a renter like we've had, and they've destroyed the house. I'm not wasting my time. Well, the girls kept on, and they said, Dad, would you at least drive us by so we could look at it? So we drive by to look at the house. And the house looked really nice on the outside. So being me, the spiritual person that I was at the time, I said, well, the house has probably been gutted. It's probably been destroyed. It probably needs thousands of dollars of work. <laughs> Not doing it. So Karen says, well, do you mind tomorrow? Because I really felt led that we should follow through with this. I mean, it came from Brittany and all this other stuff. And so she said, do you mind if I call the realtor and set an appointment and go in the house? And I, I said, you can waste your time. I'm not going. And so she said, fine. And so she went. And the house was immaculate. And see, the story behind the house was this. There was an older couple that had been in the house since the 70s. The house was paid for. They wanted to downsize. They found their dream home in the, on the Mesa. And they had just a few days to make the deal happen. So they told the realtor, they said, we want you to reduce the cost of our house, $30,000. And we, and then we want it on the market for three days. At the end of three days, on the fourth day, you bring us the bids and the contracts, and we'll pick one. So that's why it was like that. Karen goes through. She's hyperventilating, calls me on the phone and says, got to come, got to come, got to come now. And I get there, and the girls took me through the house so fast, it was just a blur. I don't even remember the house. It was just, you know, it was all the stuff she had wanted, all this other stuff. I never will forget the conversation with the realtor in the foyer. I was in the foyer, and I'm still skeptical. I'm, you know what? I don't even know if I could come up with a down payment. I mean, we have, we have spent everything we've had to plant this church, and we just feel so called of God. And, and he says, well, you know what, son? He said, he was an older man. He, says, he, said, uh, he said, I'm a believer. And for a number of years, I've struggled with cancer. And here's what I've learned. Why don't you just trust him and see what he'll do? Just be willing to trust him. Just be willing to walk through the... the uh, 
I'll never forget that conversation. And so we put a contract on the house. Everything was paid for. My, you know, Texas-sized suburban was paid for. Another car was, so everything was paid for. And I'm thinking, well, I guess I could, I could borrow against the suburban. I could borrow against this. I could borrow against the kids. I could, <laughs> I could rent them out, you know, whatever. They could mow yards. And so on the fourth day, we knew the time that the realtor was going to bring the contracts. And I put my kids in the car along with Karen, and we drove over, and we knew the time. And we sat out on the curb in the Suburban, and we all prayed. See, one of the reasons we give, I don't want to raise narcissistic kids. I want my kids to know that their mom and they dad, their dad really lived out what they said they believed. I wanted kids that when they leave my home, that they know that they can trust him with everything. They don't have to learn it on their own. They can learn it from their dad. They can learn it from a mom. I didn't have that heritage. And we sat out there and prayed, and when that realtor called us and told us, you got the house, there was great celebration, but you know what I'm thinking? They're celebrating. I'm thinking, oh, there's that issue of the down payment. Amanda, you're going to have to mow yards and stuff like that. <laughs> so we started going through the process of trying to figure out how we could come up with a down payment. And, and I talked to a bank about borrowing against the suburban and all that other stuff. And then one morning at church, I get a call from Scott, who was my renter that I hadn't talked to in like two years or a year and a half, and he calls and he says, he says, hey, Charlie, this is Scott. Do you remember me? I'm like, yeah, I've prayed for you like every day. You know those kind of <laughs> prayers, right? David has some great prayers, by the way, that you could pray. <clears throat> and I said, but I didn't tell him the context. I said, yeah, I've been praying for you. He goes, well, here's the deal. I'm calling to ask for your forgiveness. I trashed your house. That was a horrible time, and he blamed it on some girl he was living with and threw her under the bus. He said, so here's the deal. You don't have to send me receipts or anything like that. You know what? I trust you. You give me a figure right now how much it costs you. I'll put a cashier's check in the mail tomorrow for your house. That was our down payment. Now, you can be cynical if you want. And you say, hey, that's just coincidence and all that other stuff. But see, I choose to live my life in a surrendered position. And I've learned this that I am not smart enough and I am not rich enough and I am not powerful enough to secure my family's financial future. So I want to keep myself under the umbrella, the protection of God as he blesses and as he protects. And listen, we can't afford all of the things that we could afford. But we're happy and we're blessed. But maybe you're smart enough and maybe you're powerful enough and, and maybe, maybe you're strong enough. And, but I'm not. And I need all the help from heaven that I can get to secure my family's financial future. The fourth reason that I give, I give because I love our church. Fellowship of the Rockies exists to connect people to, 
to, to God and just, I mean, we, we, we seek out people that are far away from God and to connect them to God and enter into a relationship with Him and then to connect them to other believers through life groups and Bible studies and ministry and then to connect them to the community to build His kingdom. And I don't know about you, but I love the vision of our church and I love you and I love the people that we reach. And every time I talk about the vision, if my voice wouldn't crack, my pulse and my heart rate increases because I love the vision of this church. This is non-judgmental, no guilt, that we simply look for people who are far away from him and we welcome them in. And then all of a sudden we invest in them and we watch them believing in Jesus and belonging to his family and becoming his disciple. And then one day they start sharing in and they begin building his kingdom. And I love that type of vision. When a person who has never gone to church or may have gone to church as a child and it just wasn't real to them, it wasn't relevant to them, it didn't apply to their life, or maybe they had a church background and maybe they had a church history and they got judged at a church or they got burnt at a church or they got hurt at a church. And so for whatever reason, they decided, you know what, I'm done, no more. And they walk away and the day comes, the day comes, I'm telling you, when they say, I'll give God one more chance. I'll give church one more chance. And I'm telling you, I've talked to some of these people, and it takes a lot of courage for those types of people, maybe that's you and maybe you know, to come into this place and they're apprehensive and they're nervous and they don't know what to expect. And then somebody meets them at the door who is normal, who is happy, and doesn't speak in a funeral home voice that is not weird and doesn't creep them out but they're happy and joyful. And then when that person comes into the worship center and looks around and sees people that they know in the community and they like them, and they look around and they, they, they see people from all different age groups and all ethnic backgrounds, and they're worshiping God together, and the music isn't creepy, it's upbeat, it's positive, it's happy. And they may not buy into everything that's being said. But the day comes when they accept him and say, I'm going to believe in Jesus. Then I'm coming back. I'm telling you. And then the day comes. There's following believers' baptism. I love the vision of this church that we accept people without any judgment, without any guilt, and we encourage them to follow God. Don't you love being part of a church like that? Many of you in this place, you weren't attending church five years ago. But don't you love it when you came to this church for the first time? We loved you before you ever got here. We loved you before we, you ever got here, and we prayed for you before you ever got here. Listen and just hear me. If you could find a church with a better vision, a hotter vision, one that fires you up more, one that seizes your life more than here, then go there and give there. But if the vision of Fellowship of the Rockies and you love your church, then give here. Because when you give here, you share in everything that God is doing. 
When someone gets baptized, guess what? You share in that. When we go to the event center and rent out the event center, do an Easter service, and the following weekend, 35 people get baptized, you share in that. You share in what God is doing here. You share what God's doing in Denver. You share what God's doing in our community. You share what God's doing in Haiti and Dominican Republic and, and Africa and other places where we do, do missions. Listen, when I give, I am building his kingdom. See, when I give, it is a reminder to me that life is not all about me. And it breaks greed in my life. It breaks materialism in our life that is destroying this country and destroying so many families. The fifth and the last thing is the reason why we give. I give because God has given nothing but his best for me. Wouldn't you agree that he's given nothing but his best for you? When I needed a Savior, when I needed forgiveness of sin... God did not send his leftovers. He sent his very best. He sent his first. When you needed forgiveness of sin, he sent the one that was out spot, without spot or blemish. He was perfect. He who knew no sin became sin for you. Jesus is talking to a man in Mark chapter 10 as we finish up, verse 17, and here's what he says. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. So, so they just blasted that theology, right, that all good people go to heaven? Let me tell you something. You can never live a good enough life to deserve heaven. No one can. It's someone that's in a relationship with Christ. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And so the man pushed back and said, teacher, I've done all these things. I've kept all these things for my youth. In other words, he says, I'm a good person. And because I'm a good person, I kind of determined that I deserve heaven. So Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven. Come and follow me. See, Jesus loved him enough to tell the truth. Listen, let me tell you something. If you love someone, you tell them the truth. And so Jesus didn't, just so we're clear, Jesus didn't tell him you have to sell everything to earn heaven. Here's what Jesus did tell him. If you'll follow me and become a, become a giver, I'll bless you. And you'll have treasures in heaven that rust and moth cannot destroy. See, Jesus knew in this man's case there was one thing that was keeping him from radically following him. He had made money an idol. He had a great weight in his life. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to the disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God because that's where they put their trust. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And so they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who could be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With, with man it is impossible with God, for all things are possible with God. So what Jesus was telling him, it's impossible for you to save yourself. You could not live a good enough life. To deserve heaven. That's why you need him. There was one thing that was keeping this man from following Christ. Radically following him. His possession. Let me ask you this. What is your one thing? 
Is it a relationship? Is it an addiction? Is it a habit? Is it materialism? What is your one thing? 